I'm in New York City. If you can't tell, you're going to hear sirens. <laughs> what are Arabs and Muslims across America talking about behind closed doors? Well, they have something to say. I make sure it gets said. I'm Noor Goda, and I believe real talk gets us real solutions. Join me on Between Arabs, where I come to talk taboo with and about Arabs and Muslims in America. Assalamu alaikum, marhaba, and welcome back to the Between Arabs podcast. I'm excited to be here with Um Zakia, who I'm sure many of you know of and have most likely read a lot of her work. She is the daughter of American converts to Islam. Um Zakia writes about the interfaith struggles of Muslims and Christians and the intercultural, spiritual, and moral struggles of Muslims in America. She is also um, an internationally acclaimed author of more than 15 books, mashallah, including the If I Should Speak trilogy, Muslim Girl, His Other Wife, and the newly released self-help book for Muslim survivors of parental and family abuse. So clearly not a stranger to Taboo Talk. Um Zakia's books have been used in universities in America and abroad, such as Indiana, Bloomington, and Howard, and was further featured at Georgetown University, mashallah, in the publication Multicultural Perspectives through St. Cloud uh, State University and the University of St. Thomas. Professor Bryant of Howard Park said the following of Um Zakia's uh, work. He said that the novel belongs to a genre worthy of scholarly study. And in addition to the acclaim and readership that the novel received in the United States, her work has reached as far as the UK, Australia, Egypt, Pakistan, Malaysia, Uganda, Nigeria, the UAE. Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and India. And currently she's working on independent film projects that share the American Muslim experience. MashaAllah. Salam alaikum, Um Zakiya. Wa alaikum assalam, rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you once again for spending some time speaking with me and to the listeners of this podcast. It's an honor to be with you tonight. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's it's it's, a, it's an honor. But yes. I do have a curious question that has absolutely nothing to do with this. Can you tell me the background and the context of your name, Um Zakia. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Shows that. Well, it's it's actually kind of funny because at the time that I was, uh, I first started writing, and before I knew I was going to be published, but I was choosing a name, a pen name. Uh, yes, I was a pen name, and the reason I didn't choose my regular name is that yeah. my father was very well known. He worked with famous people. He was a. Uh, he was the one who had uh, taught Mike Tyson about Islam. He had worked with a lot of wow. people like. Tupac and different things. And people, he's known in, in, in a lot of circles. So to see that last name, which is not a normal last name, people would automatically, oh, are you so-and-so's daughter? Gotcha. And I wanted my own identity. So I didn't have any problem with my name. It was just, I did not want to, um, I wanted to be my own person. And alhamdulillah, gotcha. that happened. And um, I didn't even consider using my birth name at that time, Ruby Moore. It didn't even cross my mind, to be honest. But I started to use it recently in some writings. But um so, so what happened was, is that I was reading at this time, it just started some of my studying about Islam and I was reading about all these Sahabiyat women, um, this, um, that, and, and in my circle, no one had those sorts of names. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so cool. And I thought, wow, I want a Kunya, you know? So <laughs> my daughter's middle name is Zakia. So it wasn't that much, you know, in anything like really deep about the name yeah. Zakia. But I just thought like, and I didn't want to necessarily use her first name just that was just yeah. my own comfortable as a mother. And so I thought, this is so cool. I'm gonna be um Zakia and <laughs> the more bodies um anything and yeah. then you're 
everyone was like, why did you choose that name? Every Muslim is Um. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I didn't do that. <laughs> it was a glorious moment while it lasted. Yeah. Yeah. Although Zakia in Arabic, it's got a double meaning. It means, as I'm sure you know, it means yes. sweet, but it also means wise or, or highly intelligent. So yes, like, uh, um, like I can definitely say from reading several of your works that there is a lot of wisdom that uh, is embedded in that literature. And I'm so glad that it's read in different parts of the world. And inshallah, it'll continue to grow and become a part of the canon, um, especially with the West focusing in more on Muslims. Yes. Um, and trying to understand Islam. So I wanted to actually kick off talking about your work um, as an Islamic fiction writer. And when I listened to you on the panel at ICNA several weeks ago, one of the questions that actually came up is, does one want to be dubbed the Islamic fiction uh, you know, uh, archetype? Do you want your work to be categorized in that way? Or is it something that you actually take pride in? Well, I mean... For me, I never really thought about whether or not I wanted it to be that. It, it just sort of came about because there was really, at the time that I was writing, there was no genre that kind of fit what I was writing. And I sort of think of my work as fiction with, with a soul, <laughs> sort of, sort of, so to speak. And I'm still learning what Islamic fiction means to people. So I'm not sure mm-hmm. yet if if that's going to be something that I feel uncomfortable about, to be honest, it it doesn't bother me at this point, but to be one of the pioneers of that genre at this time, I'm, I'm proud of that and happy with that. Um, but it carries with it a heavy amana or or responsibility. And I would prefer not to do that alone. (laughs) So, um, for now I would say that it's not something that bothers me, but this is a genre that's really, really new. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still learning what it means to people. Right. And how new is it? Well, I would say that at the time that my first book came out, uh, which is in 2001, mm-hmm. I was aware of absolutely no other authors who right. who actually were doing it. So for some, some of the researchers who have done uh, information on this particular genre, they will say that for the novel level, I was the first because there was young adult children's books. Um, there were chapter books. Mm-hmm. you know, Muslims, but there weren't novels as far as I know. And, you know, a lot of those best, but that's what um, I heard about. Yeah. So 2001, as far as I know. Gotcha. So we can say the, the better half of two decades, and that is definitely new. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you don't end up getting categorized as the quote unquote Islamic fiction, uh, the mother of Islamic fiction, you definitely speak to a variety of very touchy and sensitive issues. One of which is the interfaith struggles of Muslims and Christians in the United States. And I know that you come from a family of Christians and Muslims. So Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about your experience personally growing up in a family with varying uh, religious outlooks on life and what that experience has been like and how it's informed your writing? Well, I mean, as as is the case for all children, it was just my life. I didn't know that I mean, I didn't consciously think, oh, no one else has this situation. And I didn't consciously think everybody everybody has it. So for me, it was just the norm. I mean, my the vast majority of my brothers and sisters um, are, are Muslim. But then some of them who were um, born before my father married my mother, um, who and they converted to Islam uh, later, they did not become Muslim, although one did. So I... Um, for me, it was just normal, you know, 
I, I, my brothers, most of us are Muslim, but everybody else in my family is Christian. And to be honest, that kind of was how I experienced the world. Mm -hmm. There was a small group of us who were Muslim at school, and then the vast majority of everyone else was at least identifying as Christian. You may have Jews or, you know, other smaller groups, but the vast majority of people were Christian. And for me, that was my experience with family. That was my experience with the United States of America. And so for me, it was just normal. You know? Right, right. Then as far as the stories that you write, why, why fiction? Why not creative nonfiction or memoir? Why spend so much time developing narratives of events that haven't taken place in real time? Well, one of the things I like to say is that fiction allows you to tell the truth without worrying about the facts. So I like that creative aspect, meaning that you can get into the truth of the nuances of, of life with people and things that you would never have access to uh, if you knew it them personally. And the reason I stayed away from true stories um, in, initially was because I didn't know how to navigate that, mm -hmm. because you really can't tell a true story in its most powerful way if you don't get into the things that no one wants to reveal or no one wants to talk about. And that's kind of difficult. I know people have been able to navigate it through memoirs. And there are a lot of laws, you know, in the United States of America protecting people mm -hmm. with libel and all of these sorts of things. But right. for me, the authenticity of that relationship, especially what I was getting into interfaith and then sometimes within the same family, fiction allows you to get into the situations that happen mm -hmm. and really understand them without having to worry about, oh, can I not say this about this person? And we didn't, because Muslims really didn't have, as we talked about before, this genre that kind of showed the experiences that many of us have, fiction was the best route to me. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like um, you can get more access to truly what's going on mm -hmm. without having to worry about whose faults you have to cover and whether or not you said too much. Did I reveal too much about myself? Mm -hmm. I still had not figured that out yet. Um, I, lo I, don't, I love writing. I don't mind nonfiction. And, and I found that I would say that even from a nonfiction standpoint, even on spiritual level, I know personally, even though I love to study about my faith and learn more, especially about things like Quran, you know, I, I'm not really into a bunch of humans' opinions about things, but just the clear thing, a lot of the books that are um, out there are deadly boring. You know, um, you really have to be interested in studying that topic. And, and if you're interested, it works. But if you're not, uh, it really doesn't work. And I didn't want to add to that. And at the same time, at, at the time I started writing, no one knew who I was. And there was there's a there's a culture in the, in the Muslim community of whenever you write about something and it's not fiction or it's has any spiritual element to it, who are you and how do you what's your right to speak about this? Because there's this idea that only these holy men you know, and, and keyword men mm -hmm. can talk about our religion and have the right. And mm -hmm. if you don't have label scholar, then anything you say about this, anything you say about yourself, anything you say about your spirituality, it's not valid. Yeah. And then we start to lose really the main ideas that we're trying to present in the work that we're creating. And we're focusing mm -hmm. on all these irrelevant details and yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't worth it for me because yeah. I'm not interested in that. I, I, 
I do understand what some people are trying to say, but I, I'm of the opinion, you know, this, this is just a waste of time arguing about these sorts of things. Yeah. I had something to say, so I said it in the way that I felt would, would be best received and would allow me to enjoy it on a creative level without having to worry about all those things. But little did I know, here come the people to say, even that's haram. So, so well, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you talked about yeah. that actually at ICNA um, at, yes. at one point. I think that was when I had entered um, the room. And I was really taken by that because as somebody who is just starting to explore creative writing, both fiction and nonfiction, I struggle with the same exact thing that that you seem to continue to be struggling with even after all these years. Mm -hmm. um, because on the one hand, you're producing this content for a community. And at the same time, I feel like I have to almost protect myself from that readership. Um, yeah. So do you ever get to a point where you feel like it isn't worth it? Because it isn't just for yourself. It's obviously for the greater ummah. Do you feel like it's underappreciated or undervalued? And does that deteriorate your motivation in any way? Well, I would say that on a quantity level, I definitely have way more support than I do have, um, you know, people criticizing or whatever. But like I said in a conversation with some people who were discussing that incident that happened at um, in IRS, I, you know, saying, oh, it's just a small thing. This person has done a lot of good. It only takes one shot to kill a person. You know, they could have been a peaceful person all their life and and all it takes is one shot to kill a person. And I say that in this context to say that even though the vast majority has been positive, I'm a very sensitive person. I'm an empath. I hurt very easily. I'm very sensitive. So, yes, I have recently actually been reaching the point where I'm wondering if I will continue. Um, because, because I, not because I feel underappreciated, because quantity wise, I have to be very honest. The vast majority of people are supportive. I have even, and as I mentioned at ICNA, even um, one of the main scholars that people respect, Bilal Phillips at Islamic Online University, they put in as a um, required reading one of my books. So I have, I've had a lot of support, a lot of blessings. But at the end of the day, those individual shots to you, you know, periodically it hurts. Mm -hmm. And it has affected me even my health and different things like this because of the, mm -hmm. the things I've gone through in trying to not just write, but practice Islam. It has um, caused many things that I haven't written about yet that I've hinted to where I actually have to consider for my own preservation, whether or not I can continue because the cruelty is when it happens, it's, it's visceral. Do you have any specific example in mind, something that really stands out to you at this present moment? Wow, I'm trying to think what I should share. <laughs> it's a lot to stand out in my mind. But um, I would say that what's probably easiest to share online is, is things like, um, I would say like one experience I had when I began to study about Islam um, and just began to practice this was right before I, be, uh, this was actually right around the time I started, I published my first book. And some people believed that I didn't have the right to have a belief system outside of what their imam taught. And they felt like, who are you? You don't have a right to this. And by you teaching or living in a way that we haven't approved of, then that makes you a bad Muslim. So they would 
slander me, uh, ostracize me. They would have meetings about like what to do about me. I was called Shaytan himself. The, um, things like when she, when Shaytan comes around, you go the other way. Um, I don't, I mean, it, it's, it still hurts today. And these are people that I, many people who are involved with people I knew and respected since I was young. Um, I was told, you know, stay away from my family, people hang up on me. And it was all because I was practicing Islam or in writing in a way that they felt did not give enough respect to the, their particular scholar. Even though I didn't mention anything bad about him or anyone else, I didn't even mention anyone. I was just, if you, anyone who's read my books, I don't get into that, right. you know, specific names of scholars or anything right. like I deal with concepts and struggles. But that was offensive enough to ostracize me, slander me, you know, um, mistreat me. It was it was horrible. Mm -hmm. It was horrible. And and um, I left that. But I find that in mo many Muslim communities, there's a level of that, you know, very much so. And, and it's still till today. And I would just fast forward till today. I saw some elements of that. Not on that level, but I saw elements of that when I wrote my last article for Muslim Matters, and it was called, I think, is discussing hijab off limits, overcoming sexualizing Muslim women. Mm -hmm. And be, and I started off for the purpose of just giving a background of myself of how it really affected me emotionally in terms of the trauma of constantly being taught, you know, being told about men's sexual desires every time I'm covering and it really, really, really hurt me, and it and it kind of made me want to stay away from the topic, even though I know it, it's a topic in Islam itself. And on that, and you can just go look at the comments. You have several men who are just offended by that. Mm -hmm. And then, then one one of them said, you know, she, she basically that I was introducing the alien religion of feminism. And I'm not even going to get into that because I did a talk about the I don't get into words and labels. You know, a word can have good or bad meaning depending on who's talking. But he obviously did not mean it <laughs> in the in the right. in the pop sense. And to see this is the state of our ummah. Here I am. I'm just saying I, as a woman, have a personal responsibility to a law that has absolutely little to nothing to do with men. Mm -hmm. This is a fact of, of Islam for every human being. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. just for women. It's for everyone. Mm -hmm. But that was so wrong and hard that I was accused of actually introducing an entirely new religion. This sort of slander and and pushback, it really does make me feel like not that it's not that people are not appreciating me is that I can't handle this anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm I I'm in one. I'm a human being. Mm -hmm. And and to be constantly slandered for what? I'm just trying to worship a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, and the only point that I'm making is that here, let's take back what is ours in terms of Allah has given us something that's for us. Mm -hmm. Let us make it about us and Allah and leave other people out of it right. and not to dismiss them, but to get back to saving our souls, mm -hmm. you know, but mm -hmm. things like this. And these are just uh, two examples that I can share. Yeah. Um, one so, day maybe law will give me strength to share more, but that's what I'll speak about now. I really appreciate that. I know that even if, even when speaking sometimes vaguely, just to have to go back down memory lane can bring up, you know, resurface emotions and, and experiences yeah. that you don't want to revisit. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that. No problem. Most of the time when 
and I'm going to use the word heroes because I feel like that is probably the most fitting term to describe the kind of work that you do, the kind of work that a lot of social activists and scholars who understand the dynamics and the nuances and the complexities of intersectionality as far as Muslims are concerned, they, I find them to be very heroic in being able to get out there and to, on one level, have to battle the Islamophobia and Islamo-racism that comes our way from non-Muslims who, you know, know little to nothing about Islam. But then also within the community, those who are extremely terrified of anything that looks dissimilar to whatever customs, traditions, rituals, and routines and interpretations of Islam that they have grown up with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if we kind of think of it in, in that way, isn't the heroic experience a lonely experience? How do heroes deal with that? I obviously am a fan of your work, and I would hate for you to stop doing what you're doing. And I'm sure thousands, hundreds of thousands would agree, if not millions. And it's not to say that you've made this decision already or not, but the the simple fact that you get to places and moments in your life where you have to reconsider the uh, trajectory that you're on, that's very jarring and concerning to me as a fan, as a member of the Muslim Ummah, as a, as a member of the American Muslim Ummah, because we have our own subset of issues. So I guess my question to you is, what tools and strategies would you consider? And I'm sure people who are listening are, you know, inspired by you and want to be writers and are going to have to face this anyway. What kinds of tools and strategies can folks like yourself have in their toolkit to protect themselves from the slander and the nonsense that goes on? Because there are always going to be critics. Yeah, there will be. Yeah. And I differentiate critics from slanderers, you know, to be clear, because I don't, I've, I've had criticism of my work ever since um, I started writing. And I knew when I went in, people either going to like the book, they're not going to like it. Some people is in between. That's fair. I don't, that could hurt my feelings, but that's not, um, that's fine. Even that you have to be prepared for. But for the aspect of the loneliness and, and um, equipping yourself to deal with it, I don't consider myself a hero. I'm really just trying to survive. Um, and the way Allah has tested me ever since I was young is that my survival is through a, jo- a, a genre or a process that actually is consumable by others. So writing is very therapeutic for me. It's But I... I'm careful about what I put out for the public because I, I understand there's another dynamic that may not be appropriate for, for public consumption. So, but in being in that, I do understand that you naturally become an inspiration to other people. And I know pe- other people are inspiration for me, so I totally get it. Uh, surviving it, um, I would say that for me, what I was, I mean, it, it's, it's still a journey. But as cliche as it sounds, just prayer, du'a, Qur'an, but even beyond that, um, writing uh, in my own journal. But I think what I'm realizing now at 41, I think I am going on 42. (laughs) I have to check. (laughs) It does not show at all. No, uh, mashallah. So I think now what I'm realizing is, positive, healthy energy in your closest circle is probably going to be the biggest determiner of the survival. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to keep going or you can handle all of the criticism and the slander and all of this. 
but that helps tremendously. Mm-hmm. And having just someone, even if it's only like one or two people, you know, that's really, really, really important because no matter how much you write in your journal and pray and make dua, we were not created to be alone. So if you don't have that, it's going to be very hard. Um, and having that, I mean, and, and that positive energy, and I don't mean, you know, a lot of teenagers, they think, you know, think of having someone in their circle, like a person who, whatever you do, they're going to say, you are hundred percent right. I mean, the balanced ones who support you as a human being, who see you whole and, and they see the goodness in you. And even if you do something, they'll, they'll be able to say, wait a minute, you know, maybe you want to consider this angle. Maybe that's not the wisest approach. Critics, like you were yeah. saying before. And healthy critics, not right. toxic critics. Right. And so this is very, very, very priceless. And I, I am blessed to have a handful of those people and they would hate for me to stop writing, you know, but I would have to say, to be honest, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's not anyone's fault uh, to be very clear. It's, it's because the, the, slanderers of the world will always be there. The fault followers will always be there. The backbiters will always be there. I just have to get to a point, you know, and ask myself at at each stage of the journey, is this emotionally and spiritually healthy for me to deal with this right now? Right. That makes sense. As the the driving measuring tool for for you, you come before anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I guess the advice and what I'm hearing from you is really to distinguish between the constructive criticism versus the unconstructive slandering and to just surround yourself by the former and to try to push aside the latter as much as possible. Makes a lot of as, sense. As much as possible. Yeah. Well, inshallah, Allah will protect you and guide the work that you're doing um, moving forward. And I'm sure which, whichever direction your work ends up going in, it's going to be what's best for you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about his other wife, um, because this, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first of your books that has been produced into a short film? Yes. Okay. I was so upset when the screening happened in Maryland, because all the good stuff doesn't happen in New York, which is very (laughs) odd to me. It's either in Michigan, or in, in D.C., or in Maryland, or L.A., and I'm like there are a lot of Muslims here. Why don't we get any of this? But could you talk to us a little bit about that work and why and how you came about creating it into um, a, a full-on uh, short film? Well, actually, the first film that was, I had inquiries about for filming was If I Should Speak. And that, and when we looked at the, the, the opportunity, I mean, I had different inquiries from even scriptwriters from Hollywood for that particular one. But what happened with his other wife is that I... I didn't even know that his other wife would be a novel. At that time, I wasn't necessarily writing um, that particular novel. I was working on something else that I've yet to re- to release. And I began to write uh, about toxic relationships. And I had just finished dealing with a very difficult toxic friendship. And um, healing through that, I was writing. And then I had come up with kind of like a short story and dealing with that, and then um, it had absolutely nothing to do with marriage or polygyny at that time. It was just purely toxic relationships with toxic friendships and healing through that. And I came up, come up with the characters. And then as I began to write it, it ended up, that ended up being the storyline that developed as part of that, that fiction story in terms of there is a brother who's wanting to marry his 
wife's best friend. <laughs> you know, if you want to make the Uma really upset, especially the females, all you have to do is mention that. So, yeah, so it was, um, then it ended up going viral. Yeah. You know, line, it was mm -hmm. like my site ended up at the end of the series having about almost a million hits, you know. Inshallah. And so I, I was like, okay, you know, I looked at, looked at the opportunity and I did look at other books at that time, but did I, I realized that some of my other books don't really lend well to short film. Some mm -hmm. things would have to be a feature film because it's just not going to work. Mm. But his other wife, because of the short story segments, because it was not necessarily intended to be a novel, every chapter was its own story. So you could very easily do, or conceivably at least, not easily, do a short film based right. on that. So where did the inspiration for that particular storyline come from? Was this something based on reality? Was it just, you know, oh, this might happen, this could conceivably happen? Oh, I mean, it's I've heard of these these sorts of stories. To be honest, I don't think I've heard of I can't say in real life if I if I heard of that particular specific one where where it's someone's best friend. I can't say. I have to think about that because at the time I was writing it, it was a fictionalized story. Mm. But sub, I don't know if subconsciously if I ever met anyone in that particular situation. I definitely have heard of friends, but not like of that level, best friends. Right. Uh, so I, these sorts of stories happen, you know, a lot in the Ummah. And for me, I've been writing anyone, if you read like footsteps mm -hmm. or different things like that, I deal with this, this aspect. I particularly uh, like dealing with the nuances of relationships, of marriages, of friendships. Right. And I think... Polygyny allows that you to to basically to explore that in a way that lends really well to fiction because mm -hmm. fiction you you draw people in with the emotion with the with the particular um, topic and there there are definitely stories that are true that I know about that um would really you know that really inspired me to write more about this but to be honest they were really good stories. <laughs> And it was the people on the outside who were bothering them that made their, and the, these are the people I know in real life, who were bothering them that actually disrupted their marriage. <clears throat> Excuse mm. me. Was it the man himself? Now, I've heard of the other stories, but I'm saying the ones who were closest to me, like I knew them personally in my life, friends of mine, they were actually dealing with their life. They've made, they, they were fine, but people were, um, slandering them, bothering them, refusing to give salams. And so some of that did find its way into the story mm -hmm. of his other, of the kind of mistreatment of the community, if anyone even thinks that's going to happen. So that was there, <clears throat> excuse me, that was there. And, and seeing that, that sort of how like we have this thing that we want to vilify because it's so horrible to us. And so we want to vilify it so much that we will do a self-fulfilling prophecy. We will seek to disrupt this relationship and then say, see, this is what happens when Told men you. get involved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I did want to include that sort of um, situation in there, but obviously with fiction, because the true stories that I know about, I don't know that I can write about it because it's not, you know, I don't know that, that, I, that I have the permission to do that, but... Mm -hmm. But in terms of that aspect of what you see and what you interpret it is not what you're interpreting is not necessarily what's going on. That definitely played into that. And I think that one of the most misunderstood 
purposefully misunderstood, quite frankly, because there's there are things we don't understand because we we really don't know, but purposefully misunderstood for marriage because we don't want to understand it. And and most of the time when it's brought up, people will say, well, I have no problem with it. I just need to see a good example. And the narcissistic uh, thinking of the Muslims in that is that if I have a problem with you, and people do this to black people too, I don't necessarily have a problem with black people. I just haven't seen really good examples of them bringing themselves up by their bootstraps right. and take themselves. I mean, I'm sure there are good ones out there. And polygamy is dealt with the same and, and it's coming from the same source in the heart people of people still say things like this. I, oh, I don't know. I'm in New York where I guess people are I don't want to say they're less racist because I don't believe that's true, but I think they understand political correctness a little bit better. So they're better able to hide a lot of their uh, you know, biases. But I that's well, ridiculous. Well, I will say this. What ha- these types of things have been going on for a long time, and they have been said, and they haven't necessarily been public. But ironically, the the effect, like for example, when we saw the in 2016 the the presidential election mm-hmm. of Donald Trump, you saw as a result droves of people coming out saying what they really felt oh, that yeah. they didn't feel comfortable saying before. Right. Ironically. And on a non-political um, level, that was the effect that the IRS convention had on many Muslims. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. What, what Hamza Yusuf did, may Allah forgive him, and I know he's no nothing of a comparison to Donald Trump as a human being. Not at all. But unfortunately, unfortunately, the effect of his words, even though I don't believe his heart or intention had anything to, of the nature of Donald Trump, but unfortunately, his words had that effect on the yeah. Muslim. We're going to actually come back to that. Um, uh, I don't want to lose what we were talking about just a moment ago, but we are going to come back to that. So mm-hmm. hold, hold that thought. Yeah. Um, as far as the short film itself, so polygamy specifically, mm-hmm. I personally did not grow up in a community that practiced polygamy um, and the vast majority of Muslims that I was exposed to throughout my life. I mean, we knew what it was. We knew that it happened back in the day. We knew that in certain parts of the world, it, you know, was still um, practiced and that it's technically halal. It's just not a cultural practice that, you know, continues. But is there a resurgence, would you say, within the American Muslim community to reconsider the viability of polygamy and the idea of polygamy as a way to address a lot of the marital issues and the issues, um, I guess you could say the effects of what certain critics would say are the effects of feminism, whereby a lot of Muslim sisters are getting older, they're not finding um, men who are of you know, value or that's such a bad word to use, but they're not at the, compatible. they're not compatible. (laughs) They don't have the criteria to be able to actually be in a successful marriage. And a lot of men feel the same way. So there's just a lot of issues within the community as far as one, being able to get married and then two, sustaining it. And as I've already shared with you, I was married and I'm divorced. Um, And there are a lot of folks who I engage with, I guess, through social media who, yes, are Muslim men who are very gung-ho about the idea of polygamy and they are all for it. The women are not. The vast majority of them are not. But as as a Muslim man, I'm curious to hear your personal outlook on polygamy and then how you are introducing it through in your text and what kind of dialogue it's creating among your readership to consider the idea. 
Well, I actually, when I first started writing about polygamy, I was actually not even thinking of it in the sense of that reading about it is going to have an effect on the actual practice of it. I didn't even go that far. It was an authentic um, human experience that I felt had its right in place in, in the representation of the Muslim experience. And that's how far it went in my mind. Of course, that's not how it ended up translating <laughs> into reality. Yeah, it's like death of the author. Once you let it out, people yeah, so do I it. Didn't, I didn't have, like, when I first started writing, I didn't have this thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to actually change the world. But the only aspect of it that I actually intentionally wanted to change was the part within our minds, hearts, and souls that rejected what Allah said. Like, because there is something where, like, I don't have to, the one thing that I find very merciful, I mean, just phenomenally merciful about our faith is that when it comes to marriage, there's nothing you have to live with if you don't want to. I mean, it's, it's, you don't have to live with anything. And, but the challenge of that is that you're living with another human being that you may want to stay with and they may have a different path. And that makes it very complex. But at the same time, on an individual level, male or female, there's choice. So um, that's the kind of thing I was trying to emphasize in my books. But back to the question, I think I don't know if there's a resurgence, uh, but I will say that in my own ex- life experience and, and, and because of my writing and getting into conversations and being more welcomed and trusted in certain circles, I, I do see in my, my personal opinion that more people are beginning to, in America, you know, realize this is not just about there are a bunch of bad men and, and, and you know, um, hu- husband hunting women, you know, out there. This is a reality that might be best, because I think that what you what I find is that amongst people who have lived a bit, they're more humbled by life in the sense of not necessarily they're open to polygamy, but they're they're not so opposed to the concept for other people. They understand that it could work for other people. And there are the group where they say, I'm realizing that, and I've heard many people say this, even non-Muslim women say this. They say, at this point in my life, the men that I find to be most compatible with me are married. Hmm. They, you know, people do say that. And, and there's a reason for that, you know? Um, so I do find that more people are admitting that that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to take the step to actually be in that situation because it's very complex. It's very difficult to get through a lot Hmm. of the social and even political and I will say pseudo legal because it's not really when you're getting into outside of marriage license and thing, it's not illegal per se. It's just that, you know, that's the the image that people who are against it want to portray that, mm-hmm. you know, make people believe it's illegal. So that's, that's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, pushback with that, but I, yes, but I, are people in my opinion, I don't know. I don't, and the reason I'm saying, I can't say for sure there's a resurgence. I don't know if I'm just coming upon people who maybe would have never trusted me before. <laughs> and that's why I'm real. And I'm just realizing that, that they're there for the first time, or if there's actually a change happening. Right. But I would say from my own personal experience, I grew up in a community where pretty much nobody did it. I mean, if anyone did it, I mean, in, in America, it was like, oh my God, it's like hearing someone committed a crime. Mm-hmm. This guy married another wife and we're like, oh Standard. my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, mm-hmm. was, it was never positive. And it, I, my own thinking changed around 17, 18 years old when I began to become more spiritual. And I just thought, you know what? This is not right. How can I talk like this about something that's in my book? I don't want to deal with it, but I would have been like, why, why am I talking like this? So right. I stopped 
at that time, you know, but it was purely just an internal spiritual decision, not had nothing to do with me being a voice of <laughs> polygamy for anyone. It was just, I don't want to be in trouble with Allah for speaking bad about something that's in his book. Mm. It was simple for me. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, it's something I want to continue to explore to be able to answer that question. Is there actually a resurgence or if am I experiencing similar to similarly to you, just folks who are crossing my path who, you know, mm-hmm. for whom this is not unusual or um, it, it's commonplace for them. So yes. it's, a, it's a good question. So now let's let's talk about RIS a little bit. And then I want to talk a little bit about a uh, piece yeah. that <laughs> okay so let's I, start there let's start there immediately after it happened i was informed of it from people you know people who are there this you know anyway it got to me and then someone had recorded it i don't know if the recording that i listened to was the one that was available publicly or if yeah. it was just what someone else had shared i can't be sure because at that time when i was listening to the recording it i had not seen it as widespread at that point so right. i no i was not physically okay. there but shortly after it happened i did hear the um the sound bite yeah the, the 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 first one and then the second one okay and yeah, in, the, in and the first one sheikh hamza yusuf you know was presenting the argument about black on black crime in in the context of the greater conversation that had been happening without making it sound like i'm asking you to be the spokesperson for african americans or black people in america how did that affect you? What was your initial visceral reaction to what you were hearing? And then was there a moment during which you took a step back and said, let me see what he's trying to say? What was he actually yeah, trying to say? Yes, that was my first. My first reaction was, okay, uh, what is he, where is he going with this? You know, um, and it was really just, I was just trying to hear, hear him out, you know, and I didn't agree with it, you know, but I was just like, I don't know what he, where he's going with this. To my tendency, that's just how I am. It's how my brain works as a human being and how I was in, how I was in school. I'm going to hear you out. You know, I don't like labels. I don't, I'm out of the belief that even after all he said, and I disagree with, I don't believe in calling him a racist or anything like that. I, I don't use that terminology as a general rule, especially for our Muslim brothers and sisters for, as individuals, unless they are this is their foundational creed or something like that. But I, but that mental process was like, you know, okay, let me hear him out, you know? And so I listened and listened and he started talking about how white people were killed more by the police. And I was like, okay, that's misleading. You know, it's, (laughs) you know, it's, and so I just was like, and then when there was, and then after, after that, there was an uproar and then I heard, the clarification. Now, the clarification was where her, was was where I, I drew the line. Um, he's talking, and then he says, "All I'm trying to say is that racism is not the biggest problem facing African Americans. It is the breakdown of the black family." At that point, I was like, "Okay, I'm done. I've I've, I've listened to you. I heard you out. This is your clarification." At this point, I was. I felt like this was a betrayal mm. of the, the role of a scholar, mm-hmm. um, which I, we see over and over and over and over again. And on a personal level, I'll be very honest, uh, I felt sorry for him because I said, you know, here's a man who is living in his own world, in his own head, who has been asked to travel the world to, to, 
convey information to people that he really believes that he has the right and the obligation to do. And whatever that experience has led to, it has led to a blindness and a disconnect from the reality of the human being. Now, in his defense, okay, and when I say defense, I don't mean in his defense of his words. I'm saying in defense of him as a human being. I don't for one second believe that this came from him as an individual just from the top of his head. The experience of many privileged people in the world, they are surrounded by people who are representations of a certain group. Mm -hmm. And those people around them who who may be African-American are the ones feeding into this. Mm -hmm. Because, like, for example, most people will have around them, uh, most white people who are in certain positions will have around them African-Americans. Even people like Donald Trump, you know, and they will be the ones telling him, yeah, I'm, you know, black people are trying to blame people, you know, for this. And so I'm going to tell you that the real problem is this. This is something that happens a lot of times in African-American as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. We many of us tend to confuse self-accountability with self-blame. And so because we can't distinguish between these two, we believe there's something great about focusing on ourselves even after someone has wronged us. It's very similar to the psychology of what happens to abuse people because that's what racism is. It's just a form of abuse. And what you'll find with people who have been abused, especially with children, women, uh, in the initial stages is that you blame yourself because you're, what you do is you look at true faults of yourself. They are accurate. And they're faults that you do have to answer to a law for. But then you take the wrong that was done to you and say that that's why this happened to me, therefore I deserve it. But you're crossing two things together that don't belong. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with many African-Americans, you know. And so I do believe, and I don't have any proof for this, this is what I believe. I believe that in his circles are those African-Americans who are confusing self-accountability with self-blame. And they may think it's a sincere, you know, they may sincerely not understand that there's a difference. And so that may have given him the confidence to do that. And because I don't, because Hamza Yusuf is a very intelligent person. I, I don't think that he would just be, to be um, blunt, that stupid, you yeah. know, and just yeah. say, oh, yeah, I'm going to, something happened, you know, in his private circles of people. And I think it did include some African-Americans who themselves have experienced some level of privilege and are therefore disconnected from uh, the reality of what's happening, and also who are suffering the the, the effects of generational abuse, mm-hmm. and are just are showing symptoms of many people who have been abused, which is that self blame, you know, getting crossed over with the self accountability. It's very interesting, and I think you're right in that, you know, for someone as intelligent as him, and right now we're speaking specifically about Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, but this happens all too often. Yeah, and- absolutely. It goes back to the question, the lingering question in our community about representation, you know, who's at the table and who's actually getting a chance to also have a plate at the table, you know. Mm-hmm. As someone who is white passing, it it also frustrates me that he's speaking to that issue. That mic should have been passed. And yes. that's the part that I think we need to humble ourselves a little bit more about um, recognizing the privilege that comes with that in the Muslim community and saying, I, even if I have my opinions and, you know, my conjectures, I'm not qualified to speak about this because I haven't experienced it. It's not my experience to speak about. 
Um, and it's it's something that I think we're still quite underdeveloped and immature as a community um, in, in realizing that. But alhamdulillah, it seems like there is a lot more volume um, and the... the uh, Muslim millennials in particular, I'm thinking about like Asha Noor, for example, who is very unapologetic about the intersectional uh, experiences of black Muslims. And inshallah, those voices will continue to be amplified because we really need it. On the flip side of this coin, you recently wrote a piece in Muslim Matters called Glorified uh, Victims, Muslim Apologists and Western uh, Culture Worship. Can you first define for listeners what you mean by glorified victims and Muslim apologists, and then talk to us about how that differs from what we just finished discussing about, you know, uh, victimhood. Basically, what I mean is that glorified victim in a simple um, form is of anyone who has been wronged or oppressed, taking that as a justification to now go and do wrongdoing and oppression themselves. And specifically in the, in the context that I'm using it is in the context of religion. Whereas one example of a glorified um, victim mentality would be um, like I'm black, I experienced oppression, people have wronged me, and this is a fact. This can't be denied, it's still continuing. But I now say, as a result, I'm superior to you by blood. God has chosen me. I am the only um, right, true Muslim on earth, and I'm going to disseminate this information. You know, that would be that Muslim apologist. It has many different meanings, you know, in different contexts. But the context that I was using in it was that the, there are Muslims who, because they're ashamed of their religion, will seek to to short, sort of change it to, to appease the Western uh, culture and then turn around and teach that back to the Muslims. And, and an example I used is something we talked about earlier is Muslims lying about polygamy. Because they want to impress the West, they try to act like, you know, there's some religious scripture that has made polygamy not allowed anymore. And, and that's what a Muslim uh, apologist would be in that, that case. And I, I think um, not too long ago, I had written a piece about the Noor Tagore um, incident when she appeared on, uh, in Playboy. I wrote an, an article on it, and you actually shared it. Thank you so much mm. for doing that. And um, oh, it, it was beautifully written, mashallah. Thank you so much. Um, but it it really goes back to what you were saying about how we're conceding to the or pandering to Western paradigms <laughs> of you know what it really means to be an acceptable Muslim and just whitewashing our our faith. But then when you're talking about authentic religious doctrine and you're saying based on God's revelation, which includes the teachings of anti-racism and anti-bigotry, what can that look like for the younger generation? So for those of us who, let's say, are in our 20s or in our teens and they're growing up in the thick Islamophobic climate right now and it's not their fault if they end up internalizing a lot of this self-loathing and self-hatred. But what can they do to make sense of what it means to be authentically Muslim without feeding into these images and tropes of, you know, being a watered down version of Islam? Well, yeah, first of all, I, I, I want to that's a very good question. Mashallah. I want to clarify that when I, who I was talking to were the, the people who teach these things in my article, not so much the people who are victims of the teachings, because there's a difference. 
because I can be taught something and I sincerely believe it. And on the day of judgment, I'm not held accountable because I didn't know that's just what I was taught. Mm -hmm. But for those people who are um, in this, first of all, you know, realize that Islam is striving versus more than actualizing. And I think that don't stress yourself and put too much pressure on yourself to understand everything. It's not even understandable, first of all, what's going on in this world. It's just not. So get back to the basics. And I would say to avoid getting pulled into glorified victimhood, mm. Muslim colleges uh, ideology, and even the Western culture worship is to stay grounded. And what's lost in a lot of Muslim classes today all over the world, mm. in the, and, it's, and it's in the United States, is that these classes are more and more becoming institutions of what I call institutionalized pride versus authentic spirituality. Mm. We're losing touch with the basics of our religion. And there's a lot of emphasis on who knows more than who, who has the right to speak, who has no business speaking. Get back to the basics. Your religion is based on five pillars of Islam, six pillars of faith. Find out what that means. Believe in Allah. Say your prayer. Stay away from what you know to be wrong. And be very, and this is the most important point, stay quiet on those things that you can't be sure about. Don't feel the need to express your opinion. It's okay not to know. Mm -hmm. if, if people begin to, to, to ask you, especially as a regular person, what does Islam say about this? Be content within yourself to say, I don't know, but I can, let me ask someone who does. Yeah. Or let me ask someone who I think knows. And sometimes you may end up asking someone who doesn't know and you think they know. But... Stay in your lane. I would say that as best you can. And what I mean by that is that to the best of your knowledge in front of Allah of what he asked you to do. And the safest thing is just stick to the pillars, stick to um, the, the, the pillars of Islam, the, your, your Iman. Stay far away from doing shirk or changing any rulings of Islam and don't get involved in anything. I don't care how knowledgeable someone is. I don't care how knowledgeable someone is. That does not mean they're right. Mm -hmm. Shaytan is more knowledgeable than all these scholars. And I don't think any of us would be fine with making him our sheikh. Absolutely. So you just stay grounded, stay focused. And it's okay not to know. It's okay not to know. The, and it, it's actually, a, I find, as a Muslim revert, it's one of the elements of the human condition and the human experience that I find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is constantly reminding me of that not only is it not okay to not know, you need to humble yourself and realize you will not know. And I have designed things to be that way for a reason. I'm Um Zakia. This was another episode on the Between Arabs podcast with Noor Goda. Don't forget to like this episode on YouTube and subscribe. Also visit betweenarabs.com for more podcast episodes. Until next time, keep talking taboo. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you.